Thanks to the team for leading us today. It's so great to hear everyone lifting their voices and to be able to see some of your faces as you do so. Uh, again, if you're our guest, thanks so much. Like there's a, we realize there's a lot of places that you could be uh, today, and uh, we know there are other churches that you could be a part of today, so the fact that you're our guest here, we don't take that for granted. Thank you so much. And if Fellowship Greenville is your place, if you're a regular, if you're a member here, thanks so much for continuing to prioritize the gathering of brothers and sisters together. Uh, I pray that today has been and will be an encouragement to you. I wanna give a uh, quick update before we jump into Ruth 4, and you can turn to Ruth 4 while I give this update if you would like to. Uh, I wanna give a quick update on one of the many things that I've been giving my time to over the past few months, along with some other folks, not just me, and that is the uh, launching of the Upstate Church Collective. I gave an update back in November. I gave another update on a Sunday morning this past February, and so it is now time for your every other month or quarterly, whatever you wanna call it, uh, update. Um, because I know we continue to have new folks that are joining us here at Fellowship, and I also know a lot of you have invested already in the collective. And so it's a strategic partnership. The Upstate Church Collective is a strategic partnership between Summit Church and Fellowship Greenville. There's a few other uh, churches already a part of it too, where we are desiring in leadership to invest in disciples and leaders to see them grow in the character and competencies of being a follower of Jesus Christ and before I talk specifics, just this might be a reminder for some of you, and it may be new news for some of you. I want to just recap a couple of things. We believe, here at Fellowship, we believe that God is redeeming people. Like, the sun came up today, and the earth is still spinning, because uh, God is still redeeming. And I don't want to rush past that. I don't want to stop. I don't want to uh, not stop and thank him in regards to how kind and gracious he is in that. Um, maybe I can say it this way. People today, all over this planet, will come to truly know God through Jesus Christ because God has given us another day. And I'm thankful for that. We believe that God's vehicle to accomplish his mission of redeeming people is the church, big C. What I mean by that is those of us that he has redeemed, making much of him and proclaiming him in the places that we do life. We talk about this here at Fellowship Greenville on a local church level in this way. We are a community of grace, passionately pursuing life and mission with Jesus. That's our deal. That's what we wanna be about. That is what we are about. We also believe that we're called to make disciples who make disciples and grow leaders in the church to actually serve the church. So if the church is God's vehicle to accomplish his mission of redemption, then those of us in leadership in the church should be committed to growing those entrusted to us towards being disciples who make disciples. Like we've, we wanna think well about that in leadership here. Disciples who are leading in their local congregations. It's part of what we're called to do in leadership here is to equip you to lead in this local congregation. And that you would also not just lead here in this local church, but that you would also think well about the geography where you live and do life. That you would be uh, intentional with the gospel in your spheres of influence, which leads me to this in regards to spheres of influence. We consider the upstate of South Carolina to be one of our primary circles of influence. This is where we all currently live and work and play. Like this is our home. And here's what I know that you know that I know that you know. Uh, it's continuing to grow around here. Like more and more people continue to move to the upstate of South Carolina. You can bemoan that, and some of you do, and let me know about it. You could also go, how cool that God is bringing people right to our doorstep that we have the opportunity to be intentional with the gospel towards. That's your neighbors. That's where you work. It's where you're in school or where your kids are in school. So we wanna be intentional with our circle of influence. And here's what we would say. The Upstate Church Collective is an intentional discipleship ministry where we're investing and developing those that wanna better use their giftedness in the local church while also intentionally raising up those that maybe are called to plant a church or revitalize a church or repurpose a church. All for the sake of saturating the Upstate of South Carolina with the gospel. And we believe that churches coming together, gospel-centered churches coming together to do that, that's the reason you got the word collective in this, because it's not just about fellowship, it's not just about summit, and it's not just about fellowship and summit. Gospel-centered churches coming together to think well about reaching a geography with the gospel is our heartbeat. 
We're a little more than four months into our first year and our first track because there's actually four different tracks that we're building out. We're just year one, track one. We have about 50 people, uh, participants in that from five different churches and about 20 coaches. So there's about 70 of us. This is us at Griggs uh, Baptist Church uh, several uh, weeks ago now. That's Mitch and Josh, their pastors there. I'm kind of interviewing them. We took the whole crew over there and we talked about church revitalization, spent time praying for them and praying over them and their ministry. Ministry, heard about their circle of accountability there in the Poe Mill area of Greenville. And so it was a wonderful night. I think there's another picture of uh, our very own Charlie Boyd, who's uh, teaching our participants. There he is one night. So there's different teachers that we bring in. Um, and uh, honestly, it's about 15 to 20 minutes of teaching. And then it's coaches with participants talking about what we're trying to process through in regards to characters and competencies. So that's been incredibly encouraging to us. So year one, track one. And uh, Lord willing, there's going to be year two with track one and track two. And then there's going to be year three with track one and track two and track three. Um, and the church planting piece, revitalization piece, is really in that track three um, that's going to be coming down the line. So I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for your support, your encouragement, your prayers, your generosity. Like so many of you have given above and beyond what you normally give here at Fellowship Greenville towards the collective. We had a goal in year one to raise a million dollars. The purpose of that million dollars will go towards, as we get into track three, the planting and the revitalization piece. But we wanted to go ahead and see if the Lord would be so kind and gracious to allow us to be able to raise that money. And to date, we're a little over 950,000 of that one million. So thank you for living with your hands open. And anybody that wants to help us collectively, we can get the rest of that here in the next couple of months. But we're trusting that the Lord will do great things as we continue to live with our hands open. I will say this. I close with this, and then we'll get to Ruth's four. The collective's for you. Track one is for anybody sitting in this room that wants to grow as a disciple who makes disciples, who wants to think well about being intentional in their local church. So in January of 2023, many of you that go, I would like that kind of intentional investment in my life, well, let us know. As a matter of fact, in August, this coming August, kind of August 1st, we'll kind of open up the registration process to bring people in for January of 2023 into track one if you're interested in that. So continue to keep your ears open if you would. All right, thanks for letting me give that uh, quick update. Uh, a question for you as we uh, jump into Ruth 4. Where is one of the most beautiful places in all of God's creation that you have ever been? Think about it. Where is one of the most beautiful places in God's creation that you have ever been? Like when you stood there and you looked out at whatever you were looking at, you were blown away by the beauty of what you saw. Think about it. Now here's my follow-up question. For some of you, as you think about that place, were there some challenges in getting there? Maybe not for all of you, but for some of you, right? Maybe it was a difficult hike. Maybe it was a winding, car-sick kind of drive. Maybe it was a long walk, but when you finally stood where you stood, you thought, well, this view is worth the challenge of being here. A few years ago now, I had the opportunity to head out west. Um, springtime, uh, more specific, a little time of the year that's known as March Madness. Uh, that's going to be a basketball tournament for some of you who might not be familiar. Uh, my favorite team, uh, the South Carolina Gamecocks, the men's basketball team had made a a magical run uh, to the Final Four. And I've been a fan long enough to know this is never gonna happen again. And so, like in my lifetime, this isn't gonna happen. And so I said, I probably need to find a way to get out to Arizona, that's where the Final Four was. Uh, and I had a friend who was super kind and gracious and got me some tickets and a couple of buddies, and so we headed out to Arizona for the Final Four. And while we were there, I took my first, and up to this point, my only trip to the Grand Canyon. Now you wanna talk about a view. We didn't go where all the other tourists go. Um, we were a part of helping with a church plant in uh, Sedona, Arizona, which is beautiful in its own right. And we had a hand in planting a church out there. And so the folks that were a part of that church gave us, me and my buddies, they gave us some directions to a different spot to park, an unmarked spot. And they said, you're gonna come to a gate and everywhere, all the tourists are gonna go this direction, just don't go that direction, turn right. And go down that road for a little while, you see a clump of trees, you see a little dirt path, pull in right there. 
and then you just follow that dirt path and you walk and you walk and you walk and you're gonna feel like you're walking just in the forest for a really long time, but eventually we promise you, you're gonna come around a corner and when you come around a corner, there's gonna be a view of the Grand Canyon. And so we parked and we hiked and we walked and we walked and we walked and we walked and it was so worth it when we came around the corner and saw this. Nobody else, just us. No walls for security, which was a little disheartening. Um, in the next picture, you'll see I got a little close to the edge. I would like to encourage my children not to do that. Anybody here ever been to the Grand Canyon before? Show of hands. Lots of us. Way to go. There's one more. This is a beautiful view. Yeah. So worth it. Standing there going, oh, wow. As we come to the end of our story here in the book of Ruth that we've been walking through over the past four weeks, we acknowledge that for Naomi and Ruth, they've been on quite a journey, a winding road of life, if you will, and it has been filled with heartache and pain, twists and turns, and we've been looking in and attempting to process what they would have been processing, right? Our encouragement to you has been, as we've walked through over the last four weeks, not to get ahead of the story, just because some of you might be familiar with the story, but to the best of your ability to try to live in the moments with them. And if you've been with us and you've heard us talk about Ruth 1, Ruth 2, Ruth 3, today, I would say it this way, is like coming around the corner, walking through the woods, for a really, really, really long time, and it's winding, and it's a difficult journey, and then all of a sudden, there is in front of you a breathtaking view of God's providence and God's love. Hard journey? Yes. Worth it? Yeah. Now, that doesn't make the sad things that we've studied so far in the story unsad. It doesn't make the hard things unhard. But it is a reminder that God is in control of all things. And as I said in Ruth 1 repeatedly, he really does care about you. And I think what we're going to be reminded of today as we conclude the book of Ruth here in chapter 4 is this. God's providence and his love does lead us through the winding road of life in which we get the opportunity to see and be with our divine redeemer and his unparalleled redemption, which allows for the bitterness of life to turn to joy. And I think the constant reminder that we all need to continue to worship while we wait. This is what it says in chapter four, verse one. You read along with me. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned aside and he sat down. Hit pause. Maybe you've seen this coming. Maybe you read ahead to the end of the story because you had to know you're that kind of person. You want to know how things finish out. Maybe you're familiar with the story, and so you know what has to be coming even if you don't know exactly how it all plays out. But for folks who would have heard this story, because many, many certainly would have heard it, told to them rather than read it, they would have been wrapped with attention because at this point, all they know is that Boaz has promised to redeem Ruth, and while that is what we're invited to hope for, the introduction of the other redeemer from chapter three that Charlie talked about last week has complicated matters tremendously because now what you have is two guys involved. Basically, an episode of The Bachelorette is getting ready to break out here in, I'm totally kidding, but maybe that's where the executive producers got their idea. I'm just saying there's a lot of tension in the room, right? Because they don't know. Like you know, because you've read, maybe you studied Ruth before, but they don't know. The final episode begins at Bethlehem City Gate with Boaz quickly going to finalize the redemption just as he had promised Ruth. And wouldn't you know it, the other redeemer just happens to walk by so that Boaz is able to stop him for this critically important conversation. Look at verse two. This is how it goes. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. 
If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, the other redeemer, I will redeem it. Verse five, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Verse six, then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Okay, so good. So, Boaz sat down at the gate. That was a sign that something official was gonna happen. We're gonna have some official business that's gonna take place. The other redeemer comes by and they have a conversation. Now, we're not told the other kinsman redeemer's name. In Hebrew, it actually is, and it's gonna sound a little ridiculous to it because it rhymes, Paloni Almoni. That's what it is in Hebrew, Paloni Almoni. And you know what that means? And it means Mr. So-and-so. Boaz says, hey, Mr. So-and-so, over here. Naomi is back from Moab. Her husband Elimelech has some property. It can be yours if you want it. And so for clarity's sake, poverty had likely forced, uh, forced Elimelech to sell the land before him and his family went to, to Moab. Because remember, there was a famine in the land. And that's where he died. So Israel, Israelite law custom then allowed for a kinsman redeemer to buy the land back in order to keep it in the family. Again, Charlie talked about this a couple of weeks ago in chapter two. That is then the, the transaction that's taking place here. Boaz isn't inviting the redeemer to hand Naomi some cash in order to acquire a field. Naomi isn't even present as far as we know. If this guy is able to do so, he can purchase the field back from the one who had originally purchased it from Elimelech back in the day before they went to Moab. And the guy says, the other redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, says, sure, I'll take it. Now, again, you know the story. They don't know the story. Everyone who's listening in goes, oh, man. No way. There's no way that this is how the story ends. But then in verse five, once the redeemer has agreed to purchase the field as mentioned above, Boaz introduces a wrinkle. He lets the redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, know that in redeeming the field, he also acquires Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. It's a great move by Boaz. He's buried the lead, brilliant. We now see that Boaz wasn't planning to walk away quietly. That wasn't the deal. He intentionally waited to introduce Ruth and Naomi's role to the Redeemer, who had perhaps not heard about them like Boaz knew them and had heard about them. And that's a deal breaker for Mr. So-and-so. Why? Because having the Moabite brought into his life and being tasked with perpetuating the line of Elimelech and Naomi, well, that would have impeded his own security and his own interest. And he already had that all worked out for himself. So the other redeemer, Mr. So-and-so says, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. So he wants nothing to do with that. So in steps Boaz, who's gonna gladly accept the responsibility. Look at verse seven. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandals. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. Verse 11 says, then all these people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built a house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So there's a couple of things here that I feel like we need to address. First of all, how they sealed the deal back in the day is very interesting. How do we do this? Uh, how, do we, how do we make this covenant happen here? Uh, take, off your, take off your sandal, and we're gonna exchange those. What? Um, I, this really isn't the point of this. I just want, I have some OCD tendencies, so I'm not sure that I would have thrived 
in this time period. Would you have thrived in this time period? Do we have a deal? Let's exchange our Birkenstocks. Well, um, as a matter of fact, it might have been someone with OCT, OCD tendencies like myself who actually came up with the idea of what about we just sign a piece of paper, right? I mean, that's where we've gotten to. What if we, instead of like changing, like I would have been dry heaving a little bit. Let's just, it's really trending in a good direction because they originally, they were putting their hand under the other person's thigh. Have you studied your Bible? Do you know how this works? You put your hand under the other person's thigh to make a deal and now we're doing sandals here and so eventually we get to something I think much more proper. This speech from, just a side note, I love the Bible. Do you read the Bible and go, this is awesome? I do. Anyway, you, this speech from Boaz is so good. Look at verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. So it's interesting, here in this moment, Boaz is not officially um, redeeming Elimelech Naomi's property. He's simply acquired the right to do so. What I mean is, in this moment, he has now moved from being a redeemer to being the redeemer. He's gonna bargain with the landholder a price of the property, and subsequently, he's gonna have the right to marry Ruth in the future. And obviously, the presumption here is in all of this exchange is that Boaz actually has the means to make that happen. And his marriage to Ruth now really is a foregone conclusion as we see this interaction take place here at the city gate. But look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, here, just in these few short verses, the scene shifts from the court scene at the city gate to the home of Ruth and Boaz some um, nine-ish months down the road. Ruth, the barren Moabite widow, has given birth to a son. It's interesting that here at the end, the Lord is shown. Did you pick up on it? The Lord is shown to be the one who granted Ruth and Boaz a son. If you would have said up to this point, his hidden hand is now made explicit, especially as we prepare to learn who this son actually is and what this means for generations to come. It's also real interesting that just from a narrative structural perspective, if I could say it that way, the chorus of women from Bethlehem, they, they return here. Do you remember back when I was walking through chapter one, we talked about this. They were present in chapter one to serve as a witness to Naomi's emptiness, to her bitterness. And now here we are at the conclusion, at the end of chapter four, and they sing of her newfound fullness and her newfound joy. And they also do, I think, a tremendous job of reminding Naomi of the truth of Ruth's love and loyalty towards her. Like the blessing of these women over Naomi, like it really is important. It's not simply because they're pronouncing words of affirmation and hope, although they are doing that over Naomi, right? They are also reminding her of what a tremendous blessing Ruth has been. Like think about this statement with me. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. Like the implications of that statement would have been staggering. Like in a culture in which women didn't have the right to own property. I keep coming back to this. Right? Naomi didn't have the right to Elimelech's land. There had to be a kinsman redeemer. 
in a time in which Ruth was in a really risky, tenuous spot. She's a poor foreigner in Israel. Not just any foreigner, a foreigner who Israel had with their people lots of conflict. Told you this, the Moabites and the Israelites didn't get along. And here we see these Israelite women, they're affirming Ruth's worth. That's cool. They are giving her dignity in what they say in this moment. She's worth seven sons. When you think about it, and I think it's important for us to think about it as this concludes, what she did was remarkable. Her faithfulness to Naomi, like it's not an overstatement to say that her faithfulness to Naomi likely preserved Naomi's life at a great risk to her own life. So there's a lot, I think, that we could walk away here coming to the end of our study. There's be a few things that I would wanna highlight now that we've walked through everything. I do think in this story, we see risk is transformed into redemption. Like redemption is inherently transformative, right? Redemption shifts our identity, and in shifting our identity, it shapes and defines everything anew. Have you been redeemed? Many of you in this room would say, I have been. By the blood of Jesus Christ, I have been redeemed. What does that mean? It means that you have had your identity shifted, changed, altered, and that has defined what? Everything anew. And you see this over the course of this story with Boaz, right? As he redeems Ruth and Naomi, a redeemer becomes the redeemer. Boaz gives Naomi and Ruth a way to truly continue to live without, they don't without him. Land and family, a potential future. It's interesting here, we don't actually see here as we read through this, I alluded to it a moment ago, we don't see the, the uh, actual financial transaction. What we do see is costly love and covenant commitment to make it all happen. Risk is transformed into redemption. I think the other thing we see, bitterness is transformed into joyful restoration. So for Naomi, where heartache and resentment once ruled, right? If you remember back to chapter one, I'm changing my name. My name is Naomi, and that means pleasant, but I want you to call me Mara, and that means bitterness. That's where she was. And now what we see here at the end is we see hope, we see a renewed joy. I'm gonna say this because I said it earlier, and I think it's really important, especially for those of you walking through really difficult things. The renewed joy and hope does not remove the scars or the pain. It doesn't make up for the loss. I mean, I don't know Naomi personally, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that every day she thought about the loss of her husband and her sons. Doesn't change that. Hurt, but there is a renewed joy in it because that's what the Lord's up to. It gives understanding to the long and windy road that is the reminder that God does not abandon or forget his people. It's a reminder that he actually meets us in the everydayness of our life, the good days, the hard days, the bad days, the confusing days. I think joy is also found in the community. Like this community, they... They celebrate with them. And I think that humanizes Naomi. Like she begins to focus on the baby and the chorus of lady reminds her of Ruth's role and all that. I've already talked about it, I'll say it again. Ruth's better than seven sons. Like seven would have been considered the perfect number of sons because that's the number of completion. So it's not like they're coming up with some numbers. What do you think, six sons or seven sons? Like there's something to that. I think the other thing we see is waiting is transformed into worship. The Lord's hand is all over this story. A kinsman redeemer, land, family, lineage, a son. And listen, Obed wasn't the complete answer to the ultimate restoration of things in the story. But the narrator gives a glorious and hopeful picture of God's tender care. That's what's so sweet. There's a reminder that even in the midst of our incomplete picture of all this going on, and we have an incomplete picture of all this going on, that worship is still the right answer. 
Worship is like a love in that it will grow in depth and scope over time, but it doesn't invalidate where it began. Does that make sense? I'll talk about it in love marriage words. My wife here. Um, what, what my love for Jen means now after being married for almost 22 years is different than it was in year one when we got married. But that doesn't invalidate year one. We worship while we wait, no matter what we understand, no matter where we are in the journey, no matter what we know in year one or what we will know even better in year 20, 40, 60, 80. You see, the book of Ruth is all about God. It's a story of his provision. It's a, it's a story of his tender, loving care. Right, we told you where this fits, right? Rolling out of judges. In a day when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, there is no king. Look at the providential hand of God. Ruth is a story about God's keeping his promises, and some of you need to be reminded today that God keeps his promises. It's a story of redemption. It's another day. It's another day where other people who walk this planet will say yes to the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. And I think it's a story that calls us to worship the one writing it. He's the one that's writing it. It's a story where we are invited to worship the faithful, redeeming nature of God. Because we too, and I'll conclude with this, we too, in a very real sense, are still waiting. Like we've already been redeemed in Christ Jesus. He has paid the full price, transformed, transforming us. But the culmination of all God's redeeming work has not yet been entirely fulfilled as it one day will be in the new heaven and the new earth. The culminating moment where all of God's divine providence and all of God's divine love become fully realized as we enjoy his divine presence forever. But right now, May 15th of 2022, we wait We wait for grief and mourning to turn to joy. We wait for healing in battles of long-term sickness. We wait for answers to prayers that we've been praying for years and years and years. We wait for justice where injustice and evil are all around. We wait for direction we wait for wisdom on what's next. We wait for provision when all seems lost. We wait for restoration when everything seems broken. We wait for hope when fear and anxiety and discouragement seem so stinking near. Those redemptive realities that we see here and know more fully in Jesus as scripture continues to unfold, they are already true for us, but not yet fulfilled in their entirety. So we wait. And just as we see here in Ruth 4, the necessary and proper response as we wait for the culmination of God's redemptive work that leads us to an eternal glory far beyond our expectations and far beyond our desires, is worship. I like this definition. I've used it in the past. Worship is all that we are responding to all that he is, all that he says, all that he does. Not because the need for risk of great faith no longer exists, but because we know obedient risk for the Lord will be transformed into the fulfilling glory of redemption. 
Not because we no longer carry any of the bitter wounds of grief and loss in this life, but because we know one day those things will be transformed into a restored, eternal fullness of joy in the presence of the one who has proved he was near through all of it. Not because we aren't still waiting and groaning with all of creation for the completion of our redemption, but because we do not wait without real hope. We have hope. Our waiting will be transformed into ongoing worship of the one whose story is truly being told. So even though we still wait this very day, we can choose worship because we are a people who are actually and actively still experiencing God's divine and providential hesed, his kindness. There's a song I've been meditating on over the past uh, little bit Ask the team if they would sing it over us. This is not the closing song. For some of you who maybe want to beat the traffic on the closing song on the regular, this is not the closing song. I can let you know when that's coming if that's your, if that's your deal. Uh, but I thought this would just be a sweet song to, to sing over us as we get ready to conclude today.
So you come to the end of chapter four. Imagine the curtain draws to a close as you've heard this story being told. You're nearly speechless. Like think about it in regards to a movie or a concert or a book, however you want to think about a conclusion of a story or a show that's kind of had you on the edge of your seat. Again, like so many who would have been hearing the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, like how they're thinking. Imagine the movie, the book, the show ends in the most satisfying of ways, but still it leaves you, and maybe you've experienced this before, desiring more. It was so beautiful, there was such depth to it, I want more of it. And maybe you're listening to the closing song as the credits roll. Maybe you've imagined the band has walked off the stage. You're just not ready to leave yet, you want more. And then you join the slow-growing applause of others around you because they're eager for more. And the curtain slowly opens to the surprise of the crowd, to your surprise. The credits stop. And all of a sudden, it becomes clear this story, well, it's actually a part of something more, something even bigger. The band returns to the stage, so to speak. Or the book maybe has a special note on the back cover that you never anticipated when you flipped it over. Look at the final paragraph of this book of Ruth, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenimadab. Amenimadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, you might be looking at me right now and going, really, a genealogy? This was the encore that you were setting us up for? Yeah, because this would have made hearts leap. Not because the waiting is over, but because it gives a glimmer of hope that one day it will be. One pastor noted, if this story of Ruth just ended in a little Judean village with an old grandmother hugging a new grandson, glory would be too big a word. But the author of Ruth doesn't leave it there. He lifts his eyes through the forests and the mountain snows of redemptive history. In verse 17, and then in this geology, where he very simply says that this child, Obed, was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, all of a sudden, we realize that all along, something far greater has been in the offing than we could ever imagine. God was not only plotting for the temporal provision and blessing of a few Jews in Bethlehem, he was preparing for the coming of the greatest king that Israel would have, David. And the name of David carries with it the hope of the Messiah. The new age, peace, righteousness, freedom from all pain and bitterness and crying and grief and guilt. The simple little story of Ruth opens out like a stream into a great river of hope. And what do we know? May 15th. 2022, we know that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus, and we know that Jesus changes everything. So I just want to remind you of it again. We do this. We come together on a regular basis, not because it's church time. Nope. We prioritize 
the gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ in large auditoriums, slightly smaller auditoriums, in our living rooms, around our kitchen tables, in coffee shops, to remind each other of our hope. We study the scriptures together. <clears throat> we lift our voices in song to proclaim that God has not forgotten us and that hope has a name. And I'll say this, you know it's impossible for me to know what each of you are currently walking through, although I do know some for some of you. But I'd just like to conclude our study through Ruth showed us again and again of God's faithfulness by saying when your life seems uncertain God has not forgotten you when you are lonely God has not forgotten you when your health fails God has not forgotten you when your dreams die God has not forgotten you. When you are anxious, God has not forgotten you. When your family is hurting, God has not forgotten you. <clears throat> when your prayers go unanswered, God has not forgotten you. Psalm 9, I cling to it often. The Lord is a shelter for the oppressed. He is a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, O oh Lord, do not abandon those who search for you. He's not forgotten you. Hope has a name. And because he has not forgotten, our waiting is transformed into worship. And because our hope has a name, this is the story we will continue to tell. We join our voices with the thousands and the thousands and the thousands and the thousands that have gone before us. It is well, for my God did not fail. Would you pray with me? My voice is about shot, so how about for prayer time? <clears throat> With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, can you just take a moment? I'll let you articulate what you'd like to articulate to God. He's intimately aware of everything you got going. So feel free to talk with him about it. You can tell him what you feel. If the Psalms teach us anything, the Psalms teach us that, don't they? God can handle what you're processing. Father God, may we be a people quick to remind one another that you have not forgotten us and that you are our hope. May we take turns saying that to each other because uh, there are certain days and weeks 
where it's actually pretty hard to believe. And this has been a hard week for a lot of people. Thank you for your faithfulness. May our voice echo those that have gone before us. It is well. You have not failed us. Thank you for Jesus.